Welcome to the District Podcast, brought to you by The Spectator World. I'm contributing editor Chadwick Moore. I'm going to read a quote today from our guest. The climate that arises whenever war, a new war erupts, instantly creating propaganda-driven, dissent-free consensus. There is no propaganda as potent or powerful as war propaganda. It seems that one must have lived through it at least once as an engaged adult to understand how it functions, how it manipulates and distorts, and how one can resist becoming consumed by it. War propaganda stimulates the most powerful aspects of our psyche, our subconscious, our instinctive drives. It causes us, by design, to abandon reason. It provokes a surge in tribalism, jingoism, moral righteousness, and emotionalism, all powerful drives embedded through millennia of evolution. The more unity that emerges in support of an overarching moral narrative, the more difficult it becomes for anyone to critically evaluate it. The more closed the propaganda system is, either because any dissent from it is excluded by brute censorship or so effectively demonized through accusations of treason and disloyalty, the more difficult it is for anyone, all of us, even to recognize one is in the middle of it. That was from investigative journalist Glenn Greenwald. You can find that full article headlined War Propaganda About Ukraine Becoming More Militaristic, Authoritarian, and Reckless on Substack, along with all of his other great work. He is with us now, and that's what I want to talk about today, that closed propaganda system we are all living in when it comes to Ukraine, and not just as Americans, but as Russians too. Glenn, thank you so much for coming on. A lot of us who were engaged adults, as you mentioned, even if very young during 9-11 and the subsequent invasion of Iraq, are having a lot of deja vu right now. And it's so strange to watch the forces in American media and politics who have been at each other's throats for the last year, five years, 20 years over any issue that arises, suddenly flip a switch and they're all on the same page when it comes to Ukraine, just expecting all of us to go along with it. And yet it appears to be working. Can you explain a little bit about what we're living through right now when it comes to this media machine? Sure. So I, I also think, you know, from my own life, the best analog is the climate that emerged in the wake of 9-11, which was extremely traumatic. I myself lived in and worked in Manhattan and was there on the day of the 9-11 attack and got swept up in this kind of all-consuming you know, narrative that this was good versus evil. And in that case, there was a pretty uh, valid basis for seeing the, the world that way. But I think one of the things a lot of people learned was that that moral narrative doesn't get you very far. It doesn't tell you very much about what the most rational and constructive response is. It doesn't tell you about what the broader context is. It doesn't tell you anything about what other people in the world who haven't gone through that and are seeing it from a different perspective, maybe thinking, including the people who you've decided are your enemies. And I think a lot of people learned the lesson, or at least I thought they had, having come out of that and realized that we made a lot of mistakes and in some ways did a lot of things that were worse than mistakes and vowed that in the future we were going to be more critical. We were going to look at things more critically. And to watch now this war that isn't even on our shores, it doesn't even involve an attack or even a threatened attack on the United States kind of replicate that framework is kind of stunning. I think part of it is the fact that there are millions of people and it's easy to forget this. We always hear history repeats itself. One of the things I'm realizing is history repeats itself because so many people didn't live through that history the first time, right? There's millions and millions of people who were either too young to remember 9-11 or who weren't even born at the time who are now part of the conversation. 
So for them, this is their first. This is their kind of 9-11. But I also think that one of the most effective ways to stimulate tribal loyalty and tribal identity is to focus everybody on some singular evil. That's how, you know, we focused on Osama bin Laden and Saddam Hussein and the mullahs of Iran when they wanted to kind of expand the war to Iran or Gaddafi with Libya. It's always the same tactic. And getting everyone to believe that Vladimir Putin is this singular evil, it just stimulates this kind of tribal instinct on our part that we're ha- we have to pick sides. We're either on the side of the West and the good and the free and the democratic or we're on the side of tyranny and murder. And and that's a very powerful framework that has been imposed. Yeah, it's, it, it is so bizarre. And you're right. I mean, 9-11 was, you know, a very different story. Obviously, we were attacked and, and all the horror that, that followed that. Then again, you know, the, the, the war in Iraq was something sold to us through 9-11. And, you know, that's a whole different what happened there. But this isn't even our shores. And, and now we're they're deploying the same mechanisms with Ukraine and it's so strange to people I know in media, even conservative media, who I would agree with on 90 percent of things. It's very interesting if I start being critical of Ukraine, you know, suggesting maybe it's not this land of, you know, peaceful hunter gatherers that invented democracy and, uh, and that Russia isn't this this uh, the, the definition of evil in the world. They start to get upset with me. And it's and 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 some of them will even admit to me like, well, war is good for business, which is one thing I think we're looking at. But but you you bring this up as well, that. We have, you know, Nancy Pelosi and Lindsey Graham suddenly on the exact same page about this. Marco Rubio and Bernie Sanders sound the exact same when they're talking about this. And it's it's like, do they think the American people aren't paying attention and 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 are just going to blindly go along with this? And and if so, is it working? So I think, you know, this is kind of a perfect storm where I think a lot of what we're seeing now comes out of the 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 hysteria and the fraud that was concocted by the CIA that ended up being Russiagate. Half the country, namely kind of the center left, the Democrats, the liberals, have been conditioned for five or six years now to feed on a nonstop diet of anti-Russian hatred. They were convinced that the reason Hillary lost and Trump won wasn't because the ideology of the Obama administration and the Democratic Party and neoliberalism failed. It was because Vladimir Putin interfered in the election and prevented the coronation of Hillary and gave us Donald Trump. So they've been fixated on hating Russia and Putin for five or six years now, believing that all the ills in our country are responsible, are their responsibility and and, and they're to blame. And then Republicans have this kind of fallback reflex that goes back to the sort of Reagan era where, you know, there was a Cold War and there was a Soviet Union, neither of which exists anymore where the idea was peace through strength and it was just automatically embracing the most hawkish side of any foreign policy debate. I think one of the things that Trump did was usher in a new way of looking at things. You know, he was very much ran against Republican uh, foreign policy orthodoxy, ran against the Iraq war, regime change wars, and sort of said, we shouldn't be bothering ourselves with trying to fix every problem in the world. We have enough problems of our own. And that ushered in this kind of, you know, anti-interventionism or anti-regime change and militarism that quickly dissipated the minute this war arose for most of the Republican Party, they went back to their standard hawkishness. And so you had this anti-Russian hatred on the left combining with this almost reflexive pro-war view on the right with kind of neocons leading the way, you know, re-triggering Republican instincts that they had been manipulating for a long time, but now they're on the side of the Democrats. And, you know, one of the things I saw, Chowick, was and I knew when I when I really started getting alarmed was before the invasion happened, you had a few people on the right or even on the left 
expressing the mildest and most rational dissent. You know, people like Tucker Carlson were saying, why are Ukrainian borders worth risking a war with Russia over? Why is that of enough of an interest to the American people? Something that President Obama said repeatedly for eight years, suddenly President Obama's view of Ukraine became, you know, prohibited. You got called a traitor or a Russian agent if you said it. And then you had people like Tulsi Gabbard saying, this war is going to be horrific. She's a combat veteran who's seen war. And she was saying, we should do everything we can to avert it, including diplomatically promising to make Ukraine a non-NATO member forever, to vow that they're going to be neutral in this conflict between the West and, and Russia. And for just trying to offer a way to avert the war, she too was widely accused of being a Russian agent. And that showed how little dissent was going to be tolerated. And people see the treatment that those kind of people get for speaking up and they are conditioned to say, I better go along or at least remain quiet. And that's very much what we've been seeing. Yeah, it's absolutely true. And it's so, it's, it's, it's again, deja vu. It's freedom fries again, all over again, you know? Uh And then it's also, it's mind boggling. And and so now we, we have, you know, I've been so fascinated when they started censoring Russian media in the West. So they didn't outright ban things like RT. The government didn't in the United States, but DirecTV removed them. They closed all their offices. The UK and, and the EU is is more, is revoked RT's licenses. Other Russian websites, whatever, are going away because they don't want Russian disinformation. You know, the same thing that they blamed Hunter's laptop on right. infecting our minds, right? And meanwhile, you know, usually I'm so engaged with the news. Every time I get a news alert about Ukraine, I just ignore it because I think it's all fake, you know, and we, and you go through all of these, these hero stories about Ukraine, like the ghosts of Kiev and these supermodels taking up arms and the people who were killed on that ghost Island who ended up not being killed, but who surrendered. Exactly. All of these. Stories. And then I think also the story about the nuclear power plant wasn't real. That the Russians were shelling that building. a lot of these and bombing a Holocaust Memorial fake as well. Exactly. Exactly. And, and, and they just anticipate and all this is, I'm guessing coming out of, Ukraine, who knows where it's coming from, but we never get clarifications on those. Most people still think that they're true. If that's not war propaganda, what they're saying that Russia is spreading, then what is? And it, and how are we supposed to, to take that? You know, I think it's the key point is, look, war is the most horrific thing that can ever happen. I think one of my, if you could grant me one political wish, I think it would be that every war, not just the one going on in Ukraine, gets the same amount and the same type of attention and the war victims get the same level of attention and sympathy as, as the, as the Ukrainians are getting, because war is indescribably hideous everywhere that it emerges, not just in Ukraine. And of course, what, one of the things that happens each side, not just the the direct belligerents, but their supporters use war propaganda to shape, domestic opinion to shape the perceptions and morale of the enemy and to shape how the world perceives the conflict. Everyone in war uses propaganda. It doesn't, it's not just the good side or the bad side. It's everyone. And so knowing that as a journalist, as a citizen, you should always a be very skeptical of anything you're hearing until it's proven, no matter how nice it is to believe it or how trustworthy you think the sources are saying it, but B you should always want to hear all sides because Oftentimes, even if the side that's at fault in the war, the aggressor or the worst side in your view, is is debunking disinformation, is presenting evidence. And when your own government start to ban news outlets, and you're right, it is the EU and the UK that it did it directly. The US tends to do it more by pressure and coercion. They kind of pressure big tech companies to start doing it. 
as opposed to doing it directly, but it's still coming from the state. Whenever that starts to happen, you should really wonder why people have an interest in preventing you from accessing information that contradicts the things they want you to believe. And that is very much what has happened. I don't think I've seen quite a system of censorship and pervasive uh, suppression of information as I've seen over the last five weeks since this invasion took place. Yeah, uh, very well put. And and it was, I believe, was it Mark Warner Warner from uh, Virginia, the Democrat senator was, I think, the first say he wrote letters to CEOs of tech companies saying you need to censor this these Russian sources, whatever. Yeah, that's that that's starting to ring a bell. And if we do get into a hot war with Russia, how close are we? Do you think to them saying, well, for example, Tucker Carlson, he's spreading Russian misinformation because he questions what's happening. We got to get rid of him. And given if this were World War Three. Uh, it wouldn't be so far-fetched that the government would actually see fit to do that or anyone who speaks out. Oh, I mean, I, look, I can promise you with 100% certainty that if you polled not just the rank and file of the Democratic Party, but Democratic lawmakers and asked whether or not Fox News in general, Tucker Carlson specifically, should be removed from the airways, denied a license, taken offline on the grounds that they spread hate and misinformation or disinformation or a threat to democracy, absolutely, the answer would be Yes, they absolutely would support that. And, you know, I am reluctant to even talk about the, the the prospect of a hot war between Russia and the United States, given the extremely high likelihood that that would ultimately and probably sooner rather than later entail an exchange of, of nuclear weapons. But certainly if we got even anywhere near that kind of a direct conflict, I could easily see authorities in the United States, which means the Democratic Party, they're the majority party in that both houses of Congress, the White House, they control the executive branch and all the agencies, starting to really get close, closer, if not as close as possible to thinking about how to remove not just, you know, people from YouTube and Twitter and Facebook as they've been doing, but to start to remove more traditional media voices that are off key with what they believe is the truth. Well, yeah, they've already had many, many trial runs with the New York Post and even some other places that are more legacy media in doing that. Uh, Glenn Greenwald, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, you can find him on Substack. Please check him out there. Uh, thanks again for coming on, Glenn. Thank you for having me, Chad. It was nice to talk to you. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please check out more at spectatorworld.com. And if you'd like to listen to us, please check us out on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever podcasts are available. Oh, 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 oh,